Okay, everyone, places and action. I love the smell of napalm in the morning. You talking to me? Here it looks like you boys have seen a lot of action. You're gonna need a bigger boat. Why so serious? I am serious. And don't call me Shirley. This is a Cinema Plus podcast brought to you by More Movies. Hello, and welcome to the Cinema Plus podcast brought to you by moremovies.co.uk. This week is the 10th and final episode in our first series where we watch and discuss some of our favourite movies. I'm David Roberts, and I'm joined by my friend and colleague Greg Fisher as we deep dive into a landmark of American cinema and an old time classic, 12 Angry Men. This classic courtroom drama, directed by Sidney Lumet, stars Henry Fonda, Lee J. Cobb, and Jack Warden, along with an ensemble cast as a jury of 12 men. They are tasked with deliberating the conviction or acquittal of an 18 year old defendant on the basis of reasonable doubt in an alleged murder trial, forcing the jurors to question their morals and values. The film explores many techniques of consensus building and the difficulties encountered in the process among this group of men whose range of personalities adds to the intensity and conflict. It also explores the power one person has to elicit change. The jury members are identified only by their number. No names are revealed until an exchange of dialogue at the very end. The film forces the characters and the audience to evaluate their own self-image for observing the personality, experiences and actions of the jurors. The film is also notable for its almost exclusive use of one set, where all but three minutes of the film takes place. In 2007, the film was selected for the National Film Registry by the Library of Congress as being culturally, historically or aesthetically significant, and has influenced so many people in the film industry, it's hard to count. Before we jump in, here's an interview with Sidney Lumet for the AFI, discussing the film and what it means to him. On 12 Angry Men, uh, Reggie Rose came up with a story in which... uh a vote of 11 to 1 on the first vote taken in the jury room for conviction gets reversed in direct time. The picture's length is the length of time they are in that court, uh, in that jury room. Uh, so in two hours, it gets reversed from 11 to 1 uh, for conviction to 12 to nothing for uh, freedom of the, uh, of the accused. And it's done through the efforts primarily of one man, the Henry Fonda character. All of these decisions are um, are brought about by personal feelings that may or may not have anything to do with the case. Um, in some instances they do, and in many instances they don't. And as we know, the Lee Cobb character, juror number three, uh, is the most wedded to a personal experience, which is why he's the holdout on the other side uh, as much as Fonda is. But it's all in terms of what his personal history and what's happened between him and his son. I think the movie is very good about uh, the best in the United States about the jury system. So, there we go, 12 Angry Men, 1957. There's a hell of a film there. Absolutely astonishing. Probably one of the all-time greats. In my opinion, everybody should watch this film. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, you know, I it's such 
an amazing production. It's such an amazing film. Yeah. That it reaches for me. It's not only one of my favourites. It's not only my favourite, actually. Yeah. It's it's also what I think is one of the technically most brilliant films in, in terms of its production as well. Right. Just astonishing. Yeah. Um, I remember reading once, I think it was shot on 16mm because they didn't have that much money. And uh, even though the picture we watched, I think Criterion Collection, a really nice picture, but you can, you can still see that that crackling bubble of the 16mm blown up. It, which is lovely, but um, you know this was done on a shoestring. You know this was a passion project for for Fonda, I think, and rightly so. Yeah, I mean, in, you know, it was done on a budget of uh, about three hundred and thirty thousand dollars. You know, real pittance money. It was shot on sixty millimeter um, because of the, the small budget, but yeah, that's what gives it its character and its restrictions created. What oh, I yeah. think is uh, a, a brilliant piece. You know, this is Sidney Lumet's first feature film after coming out of television. Yeah, and I think he brought a lot of the tricks that he used in TV, and a lot of the ideas, and then translated that to film. Yeah, uh, very successfully, and in marking a kind of transition period at this point where TV and film was was starting to become at this interlinked entity, and people were involved in both uh, things. Those crossover uh, projects. Pretty much. The, yeah. Uh, that's a great opportunity for me to mention the Twilight Zone because uh, I'll just beat you to it this week. Uh, but <laughs> that's kind of like one of those examples where, you know, you'd get uh, guest stars from film and TV in that sort yeah. of program. And, you know, it's indicative. I mean, this obviously is nothing. There's nothing uh, Twilight Zone about it. It's It's realism. It's 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 a hell of a moral piece. It's there's so many layers to it, but it's one of those films when I say yeah, everybody should watch it because it really points out so many things about us as a society, as a people that we need to uh, we need to look at. And um, the man in the white suit, Henry Fonda's character, is just you know he is that. It's he's that angel in a sense, the better angel in all of us that. Uh, that manages to um, pull it all back. I mean, what a great thing. In, in a way, it's kind of sportsy because it starts off 11 to 1. <laughs> it goes along, you know, oh, 10 to 2, 9 to 3. And obviously, you know, it, it changes over and goes goes right the other way to uh, 11 to 1 again, but in favour of not guilty. And just the process Never of Never tell me that, the odds. <laughs> it's, just, <laughs> it's just brilliant, though, that um, it manages to to do that so from like I say from a sporting point of view from a betting point of view it is kind of like it's fun in that sense it's it's it that's the that's the sense of innocent fun in it that it tips the balance from one end to the other but obviously the that's the all, all the meat on the bones there about the actual murder about the actual case itself and what it says about everybody it's a genius piece it is the ultimate piece I don't think I've yet I'm yet to see something as succinct and as and as well put together as Twelve Angry Men, whether that be the play, you know, on paper or or this film. I think it is, you know, so, something special. I think that's it. It's it's really really special and it's it's interesting really because I, it's true. I don't think I've come across a story ever that is as tight 
as is so well structured as what this is because it's incredibly simple yeah it's the simplest of premises you could ever come up with we talked the other week about the exam and um that being a a single room films and there's plenty of examples of them yeah but this is the ultimate single location film oh yeah without a shadow of a doubt for me you it's like it's this one's more like rope rope in that sense in that you 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 don't think, oh, it's a single location film. Whereas, as 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 good as exam is, you do think that you think, oh, it's just yeah. going to be in this one room. But this film, it's 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 so so much about the characters and what they're how they're interacting that you forget yourself that you sat in a room. Unless the film wants you to know you're sat in a room and when the pressure starts room, cooking. Yeah. But you know what I mean? It's you, you don't at any time miss any sweeping vistas or technical special effects. You don't need any of that because the fireworks and the, and, and the magic is happening between the actors. But I think it has those things in a completely different way because it's an incredibly simple story, but it's layered with such complicated as you say, analysis of the human psyche and it talks about us as society and as people um, in such a succinct way and it's portrayed by actors doing some of the most remarkable work on screen that I have ever seen. Not just Fonda playing his fantastic part, but everyone in that room embodies the character that they are portraying and every single one is so unique you understand from looking at them exactly what they are and what they're trying to get across to you and you can relate that to someone but although they're trapped in a room uh, Lumet and the crew have managed to do something so remarkable um, and, and I think it you know from looks from the way it's shot and it's shot so remarkably um, all the cameras throughout the film, start with these kind of wide angles giving quite a depth between all the subjects and then as you slowly come through the film the angles get tighter and closer and you, you start to see more close-ups of things and, and the the depth of field sh- um, gets shallower between the subjects and everything starts to become quite claustrophobic in a way and it's because this film i think more than anything it's about it's slow escalation it's this ramping up of the tension and the pressure in the room and this is done through the camera movement and it's also about the staging as well because you know you could have a film like this and I think you probably saw this in the exam more that where there's a lot of kind of sitting around there's a lot of kind of just standing around that doesn't happen here people are moving around that room everywhere chairs are being moved around so they can act things out people are thinking on their feet and i think that's why the acting and the portrayals are so unique and so brilliant because they're not just sitting there you know aimlessly wandering around it's a it's a it's a piece of movement it's theater is exactly theater they're going around the stage round around the table like you said but it's also cyclic in its in its structure because when each time they come back to a new vote all of everybody goes back to their seats everybody has their yeah. place suddenly they are just a voice uh, a yay or a nay you know a guilty or not guilty and then as it breaks yeah perfect uh, observation there they all start to move about they go into the ante room they're out again there's all this ramping up of the heat but also there's also um 
after it reaches a certain point, I think maybe when they go to 11 to 1 again the other way, the fan starts to work, so they're all this pressure is relieved and they cool down a bit. And the rain really comes down outside, so that really cools them all off because that one guy says, doesn't he? Uh, oh, it's raining, it's quite nice actually, it's cooled, cooled us off. So, in a sense, it's like they start down there in hell, in cooking, cooking right down in the bowels of hell. And as they, in a sense, alleviate themselves of the burden, because that's ultimately, talk about the psyche, that's what they're doing, is taking away that um, burden of, of taking somebody else's life and being responsible for that. So then they're elevated to this cooler uh, plateau where the pressure's off and they can oh, get some relief. Obviously, Lee J. Cobb is the last to go. In that performance he gives, especially that build-up to... Uh, to the not guilty um, decision that he gives is, for, for my money, that's the best bit of acting. Because, you know, in all these AFI things and all these kind of montages, you always get, I could have been somebody, I could have been a contender. You know, you get the Brando, yeah. you get the James <laughs> Dean, you're tearing me apart. And you get all these ones, even you even get, uh, I'm walking here from uh, Dustin, but <laughs> nobody does the great Lee J. Cobb pointing that finger and he's the best yeller he's got the best yell in the whole business his oh yell it's amazing, is amazing isn't it it is it is incredible shout what's the matter with you guys he's really <laughs> he's musical in in this in the way that he yells and it's it's classic the stuff. damn kids yeah. you build oh them up God. It, it's it's remarkable guts out oh it is it really emotional actually uh having seen it four or five times watched it again knowing we were going to be talking about it put, uh, stuck it on last night and even, even, I think all the more so even more so than before it gets to me it gets the emotions really it's incredible it really is you're not watching Lee J Cobb you're watching that character come to pieces in front of all those guys and it's like you said that pressure's been building building and it just goes off like a gas valve and the way he curls himself up, that physicality of that performance, and he hides his face in shame and not guilty. Not, oh man, that's all of us right there, isn't it? It is just all of us. It's incredible, incredible acting. Lee J. Cobb, man. Oh, it's. It, and and exactly that. I think it's a really good analogy about the, the heat as like the representation of the emotional pressure yeah. and heat that is running through the room, really. Sure. And. Um, what I like as well, I think, is you got all these unique characters, yeah. But they're a really great representation of a broad spectrum of society and There's, and facets of all of us. And facets all of, of all us, of us. As, and I think as an individual, I find there's that side of. I it think as well. although there's perhaps um, some examples missing, um, but certainly for the time, I think it's a really good spectrum. You've, you've well, that's got the thing. The, I think because they are all archetypes, you've got. Henry Fonda, like I said, is the angel, the better angel in us all. You've got the old man, you've got the uh, uh, bitter guy, you've got the um, immigrant, you've got the guy who grew up yeah. in the slum, you get, you know, the businessman, the banker, all these kind of guys. Um, that, in a sense, they're such archetypes that I. That's why I say that they're all part of all of us, 
And it's whether we choose to be Henry Fonda or Lee J. Cobb or any of the in-betweens at any point in the day at different times. You know, sometimes we're like that marketing guy and, hey, everything's just a joke and everything's really funny and I'll run it up the flagpole and salute it and, you know, all that stuff. But he, even, he is an important character in that way because he's the one that flim-flams a bit and he, you know, he... He's, relieves the tension. Yeah, he does relieve the t- tension, but he also he votes the one way and then he comes back again. He's, he's impressionable and he just doesn't. He's too young to even know his own um, yeah. will. Even a minor character like that, I think, has that importance. And obviously, some of those guys, like you know, you got Jack Warden. Yeah, Jack Warden. Yeah, the Yankees fan. You know, a, a absolute legend. But he's dead young in that. But he's unmistakable. It's like, oh, it's Jack Warden, crazy like a fox, man, and. um <laughs> Then you've got, of course, uh, people like Martin Balsam and uh, Jack Klugman as well. He was when I was a kid, he was uh, on TV as like Quincy, so he was like yeah. sort of old man there. But in this, he's dead young, you know. All he got all his hair <laughs> color and everything, and they're all brilliant. They're all just absolutely brilliant. Well, it's like great kind of representation of the kind of the ages and the backgrounds and the class systems and the different jobs they do and where That's they've what come I mean. from yeah, and they stuff. Are, that brings the values to the table yeah. and you see something in all of them and you go I'm sometimes grumpy like him I'm sometimes indecisive like him I'm yeah. sometimes trying to do the right thing by him I tell you I really and you're like rooting for all of them who's the guy that um, is is the one with the glasses E.G. Marshall E.G. Marshall oh, Jared Ford, he's yeah. brilliant as well because he in a way he's one of the bad guys you know if you're going to break them into good guys and bad guys the good guys obviously they go the ones that side with Fonda the quickest, straight away the old man and the, and the, and the uh, guy from the slum and and the uh, immigrant guy, everybody who can relate to something or a lot of things quickly, they they side with him. But some of them really stick to, stick to their guns. And E.G. Marshall, he's very he's not he never loses his temper. He's never nasty with it, but he's very calculated. He's very cool with it. He's he wants to know uh, the exact details and. And I'm really impressed by the way he gets him in the end. That that is, we're almost in murder mystery territory there because it's inverted murder mystery. But it's it's like he's trying to prove to this guy. Well, yeah, yeah, exactly, and and to prove to him that hey, things aren't as uh, aren't as. That's what it does well all the way through this film. In its script, is it it all the arguments for all these characters it works against themselves and even sometimes it works against Fonda and he says yes but I'm just saying it's possible no I'm just saying it's possible the boy lost his knife and that somebody else stabbed his father with a similar knife it's just possible I'm just saying a coincidence is possible and I say it's not possible you mean you're asking us to believe that somebody else did the stabbing with exactly the same kind of knife the odds are a million to one it's possible but not very probable because he's yeah. got nothing to lose by saying that, but they've got everything to lose by by conceding that it might be misconstrued one way or the other or interpreted in a different way. But they're con- they go so far in their railing against uh, the fact that he, he might be not guilty that they prove themselves wrong by saying all sorts of stuff. And it, it really brings it to a, a point where he says, uh, I'll kill him, you know, when he's called him... Um, whatever he calls him a, a bigot basically and he's like, I'll kill him and then he's like you don't really mean you'll kill me do you oh wow that's like Ooh. it's perfect it yeah. is <laughs> it's that the, the first time that happens in it is when he pulls the knife out of his pocket that's a real wow moment 
That's like, oh, yeah. everyone's like blown away. Where did you get that? You're uh, telling me you'd see a knife like this. It's so distinctive. Yeah. Yeah. I always think Marshall is a bit like a um, a Bond villain. It's like really cold and calculated. Well, I thought, kind yeah, of like a Nazi, like a sort of, you know. Yeah. Yes, we are, I think you are trying to escape from Castle Wolfenstein tonight. But yeah, uh, he, he, but he's really good in that sense that he's he's very uh, measured and very uh, yeah. He knows he knows what he's going to say, and he doesn't say it otherwise, and he doesn't let emotions get the better of him. That's why he said, "Do you ever sweat?" And he's like, "Never." And then Never. when that when he does go under pressure, that one bead is is enough to tell you even his uh, temperature thermometer's gone. And uh, yeah, he's he's a great actor. He's a really good guy. It's a lovely kind of moralist uh, heart to the story, which I like as well, because it really kind of represents what we, what the uh, justice system should be, and it's about you know, it's it's not. You it's know, terrifying to think, if because most people are not like Henry Fonda is in this film. No, um, very few people. A different are like jury that. could so, have sent him off to well, die. This is the implication that most most juries would. Because he's yeah. an idyllic character. He is like an angel. Like I said, when he walks off on the steps in the end, it's like goodbye, Mr. Chips or whatever. It's like he's gone back to a cloud on, you know, in heaven. And he's not of this earth in a sense that... Yeah. You know, of course he is. And that's the argument that it's like, you know, be be like be like juror number 11 or whatever he is. But... But I love that kind of push towards the, you know, it must be beyond a reasonable doubt, yeah. you know. And when the guy says, you know, we're talking a matter of uh, seconds, you can't be that precise, you know. And he says, I, I think someone that's going to put a boy in an electric chair should be that precise. And it's like, yes, it should be, because if we're talking life and death. Sure. And that's what the film is uh, centred around, the, the heart of the story. Without getting too deep into it, but it's, you know, they don't get too deep into into that apart from a few moments. But it, it's that undercurrent that is so true in terms of you, you're it basically is, holding is, a man's life in your hands. Yeah, it's still the mistakes. But just because it's the death penalty, I don't think uh, it's any less powerful in the sense that if they were sending him down for any length of time, because even if you sent someone down for four or five years of their life, that's their life they've got to spend in a prison. Still, for even of course, and it could be wrongfully, as, yeah. as, uh, as sentenced them to death, of course, but it's still messing with their life, still taking away their life. So, yes, of course, if they're, they've done wrong and they broke the law that and they get sentenced and they deserve it, but in this case, he, like you said, beyond a reasonable doubt, it's it really is uh, the high stakes, isn't it? Yeah. And it's why I think it's like the ultimate courtroom drama. It's really nailing down yeah. the pre the precisions of you've got to get this right. You know, you, you can't just blow this away like the like the Yankees fan. You know, like um, Jack Warden. You know, just going, oh, well, I just want to get to the ball game, so sod it. I'm just going to say guilty. It's like you you just can't do that. You know, yeah. it's it's wrong, and it's so it's so brilliantly portraying all these emotions. Yeah across the different characters in the room uh, and does such a fantastic job of it yeah it's it's incredible it's it's uh, they were probably i imagine like all those great films of, the, of that era of the 50s where they had like streetcar named desire was when it was filmed it was they used brando who'd, who'd 
been big in the first run on Broadway and I dare say it was the same sort of thing here that Fonda had been doing it on Broadway and and maybe uh, Lee J. Cobb and stuff with him because all those guys, they were theatre actors. Mm. That's how they could project well. That's how they, they knew how to move about these sets and hold themselves well and they knew their lines and, oh man, this is just like a different level of... Uh, of acting and screen, screen acting here, and, and and so well put together as well. In that sense of one of the things I I noticed a while ago, uh, whenever a really key uh, moment arises in the film, a key, a key part of information is going to come. It always goes to an extreme close up. Yeah, of the person whose decision it is. In the moment when the, the old man says it was me, so you can literally see on their face that. Their mind the face, changes. Yeah. Their mind changes, and they're like, "He's got a point." Because that's basically what it is. It's, it's how how frame. quickly all the others can relate to uh, what Henry Fonda's saying. Like in the senses, it makes it personal to each of them. And as, as soon as each of them says, "Oh, sh- oh sh- yeah, I didn't think of that," that that kind of would affect me. You know, I'm that with that one guy. It's the mark on the. On the nose and stuff, isn't it? And with the glasses, yeah. you know, E.G. Marshall's like, he, he took all of those things he, he he cleverly argues against. And I like that bit where he, he turns around and he says, uh, I've listened to you and you have made some very good points. But the thing that gets me is, and that's the last point. Yeah. And, and then they talk about the glasses. but When they've got nothing else left, yeah. But it's good because he plays it like, in a sense, like chess, in the sense that it is quid pro quo. It's my move then your move and and let's figure this out the right way in a sense like you say it is a courtroom drama because even though it's in the jury room they have a mini trial again with him doing the paces up and down the the room to see if the guy that's what's great as well isn't it because as you said like it's like a reverse murder mystery and it is in that sense of deconstructing all the facts drama as well Yeah. yeah Yeah, De- deconstructing all these facts they've been given that you don't even think about because they're mentioned quite quickly and then you kind of go, yeah. oh, yeah. But it tells oh, you yeah. everything oh, yeah. that you need to know about what's just happened because the, yeah. the opening scene is the end, in a sense, of of the uh, the defence rest sort of moment, isn't it? It's like, right, yeah. you've heard everything you need to hear. Jury, get back to your room, come back with a verdict. That And there's just some young lad sat in a chair. But, um, you know, you can compare it to the... In it, it's, it comes after and in the great tradition of something like um, To Kill a Mockingbird, where you've got Greg, yeah. Gregory Peck in the courtroom and it's that feel-good kind of moral tale that makes everybody want to be a better person after you've watched it. But, you know, you get right-wing fascist sort of, you know, people who, who like... Uh, people like John Wayne and stuff like that, those sort of movies, they'd be saying, you can't have... Every- Nobody would ever go to jail. Murderers would be getting away with stuff if you acted like that every time. You know, there is a rebuttal. But I think, uh, really, there's, you know... You end up like Lee J. Cobb, if you like that. Bitter, twisted, confused, don't know what you're doing. Angry at the younger generation because they bopped you on the chin just like you taught them to. There's a lot it's to be said It's interesting because it, it has... It has been done um, a few times now. I mean, it was originally, it was a TV serial, um, the very first production. And um, 
then they did this film and there's been remakes since then and of course it's been on stage since then and there's been TVs produced and newer films so it wasn't on stage first it was on TV first was it yeah I think it was a a TV screenplay first and then this was like a remake of that because the format does imply it is a play in a sense, doesn't it? Because it's perfect. But I think set. it was like one of those tally plays they used to do back in the 50s. Obviously, sure. they did a lot of those kind of Crossover. smaller pieces. Um, Old school Done live kind of things. Yeah. Brilliant. And um, But this is the best version. Because I've seen a few of the different versions. Um, but this is definitely the best one, without a shadow of a doubt. I only and, seen um, this film for the first time about maybe eight years ago, maybe just before we left university. So, you know, I'd gone 30 odd years in my life without seeing it. And now I consider it to be one of the, you know, the top 10 films of all time. So it's nice that you can, you know, you can see a lot of films go a long time and still have not seen stuff. But there's still loads of films now that I haven't even seen yet that I know I will consider to be, you know, amazing films because you're always discovering, you're finding out more and more all the time. But this was one of those that I just, I couldn't believe it. I just thought, how have I never seen this film? It's, it's... Well, it's 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 interesting film, really, because I think there's a lot of people who haven't seen the film. You mentioned it to people, and people go, never heard of it and never seen it. And I think maybe people put off as well, because, of course, it's one of them. It's an old film, black and white. They don't realise what they're missing, drama. though, do they? You know? Yeah. They kind of just they brush it off and don't watch it, and you think you're missing one of the most important pieces of cinema, in my opinion. Definitely. Um, I was fortunate enough that um, I was shown it, it must have been about 10 when I first saw it, and I was just fortunate enough that my dad remembered it growing up and said, oh, it's a brilliant film, yeah. you, you should watch this, and I watched it and fell in love straight away. And I must have seen it about 20, 30 times by now because yeah. it is my favourite, but... It is a film that so many people haven't seen, and it's a real shame because, you know, in in the critical film community, it's regarded as an absolute masterpiece, and rightfully so. so. But by general audiences, it's it's a, a lot of people haven't seen it, and it's a real shame. I think. Well, you know, they still uh, got the opportunity to. Um, of course, I'd, I'd advise um, anyone watch it immediately. Stop what you're doing if you even if you work like Homer Simpson in a nuclear. Uh, Power plant. Stop <laughs> what you're doing. Go home and watch Twelve Angry watch Men, and 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 you can get back to the meltdown later. But yeah, but, uh, I and mean, as well, it's it's in a sense as well. It's it's a film that if you hadn't seen much of Henry Fonda's work, you'd you'd instantly want to after that. Oh yeah, because that was another one for me as well. I I, I knew him mainly because of Once Upon a Time in the West, and that's the one time he played an absolute. <laughs> bad guy he was a real <laughs> son of a bitch you know what I mean um, but yeah, that, he, he, was, one, he yeah. was playing against type and I'd not I've not seen um, Grapes of Wrath by then either and of course knew Peter Fonda of course knew Jane Fonda of course knew Bridget Fonda even but his work I maybe seen something like on Golden Pond years and years ago when I was too young to really get it but yeah I didn't really yeah I, I you know, James Stewart, his best friend in real life. I'd seen a lot, of, lot of his stuff, but but even the even the James Stewart stuff, I was only just starting to see around that time. A lot of the Hitchcocks and uh, Wonderful Life stuff like that. But but when I watched this, I thought that's it. I just got to watch all of the great stuff with Henry Fonda because 
he's just so watchable so such a great great actor just one of those classics of back in that era where you just you'd watch him do anything you'd watch him just sit there doing nothing because they're just so brilliant you know they're brilliant they're, they're two of my favorites because i think they're, they're those actors that have got that presence haven't they um and they're such a distinctive look and they can effortlessly pull something off you know you saucy little devil uh, and are so likable doing it usually um i knew like lee, can, lee they, jacob from on the waterfront where he plays yeah. that, the bad guy and stuff so I was kind of familiar with him, and there was—I uh, think he played like a really good uh, Willie Lomax in a version of Death of a Salesman. Or um, anyway, um, when he turns up in this, you think, "Yes, this guy—he is going to shout and scream at everyone and point his finger, and it's going to be amazing," which he does better than anyone else ever. But Henry Fonda, I was just like, "Oh my god, I just—I want to be Henry Fonda. He's like the coolest guy ever." <laughs> I'm just saying it's possible. He's just brilliant. Even that suit is really nice. The white isn't it? suit, yeah, it's uh, like the man in the white suit. He's it's he's got good guy written all over him, moral, moral guy, good ethics. I think it's another great example as well as we've we've talked about. Um, it's just one of those. It's probably the best example of you don't need a massive budget. This was only done on three hundred thirty thousand dollars. Oh yeah, and. And you don't need loads of shooting time. This only took three weeks to make. And you don't need massive expensive sets or anything like that. You just need a great gang of actors. Sell your house. Get your <laughs> wife and your kids in the caravan for 12 months while you're pre-production. Three well, you months make a masterpiece. Here, then you've got a couple of months post-production. You can mortgage the house, 330000 and you have got a masterpiece on your And you've hands. got it. But... Just the fact of all you need is great actors and, and a, a great, great script, script, and you're there. And Sidney Lumet, as you said, yeah. <laughs> behind it all. No, I, it's a good point to be made. You don't need... I mean, because we're, we're still watching this now, all these years later, and um, and it'll never get old. It's it's just a classic. It's an all-time classic moral story. Yeah. It's like the Shakespeare of films. In that sense, that and completely it, timeless. You yeah, don't. It, it doesn't be. age. No, it shouldn't. It shouldn't have to age because we can. All the things they are there are in there to relate to are still are timeless, and they, we can't. You can't put a, a kind of time stamp on things like that because they'll always be with human beings. They always have been. They always will be. And uh, it's got, it's a very important film in a sense to watch in the Western uh, democracy because. You know, you never know when you're going to be called as a juror. And it could happen to any of us at any time. Um, and yeah. if you got called up, that responsibility lies to you, whether that would just be somebody who's got, you know, had a, you know, something a bit more trivial or something as as heavy as this where murder was involved. And either way, you've, you'd have that responsibility of making sure you, you absolutely knew without a shadow of a doubt that they were guilty before you laid any sentence upon them. Because if you didn't, you wouldn't want it to be you, would you? You wouldn't want to be an innocent person in the dark and be at the mercy of a bunch of bigoted people that have took one look at you and said, oh, they're all terrible, send him down. Because that's basically it. That's it. The, the guy, Jack Warden, he just wants to get out of there to watch the ball game. And I think he is the everyman more so than any of them. He's like, I don't want to think about this. I haven't got time for this. I want to get and watch just the match. Just want to get on with what I want to do. Watch yeah. the match. 
As much as on eight, he's basically, he is that guy. And I think that's most people in the sense that they don't want to think about it. They don't want the responsibility. They don't want to think about it. They want to just do what they habitually do. And, and, and that's that. And he wants to get away from it. But even him, even him in the end, he has to, I love that bit as well. Cause he just says, Oh, fine. Not guilty because that's how desperate he is to get out of there and watch the match. But that guy busts his balls, doesn't he? He says, you can't just do that. You go, you know, yeah. you've got to, you've got to say true. why. And he, I don't have to say it's it even examines that kind of attitude, which I think is, is one of the yeah, great it's parts a fantastic about this moment. film. It, yeah. It's all encompassing. It, it, it strips every kind of opinion down. Yeah, and that's it. It strips everything down to its core and is really nailing down kind of every little nuance of what you say, what you do, what you think, how you act, where you've come from, and, 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 and grabs it and, and the goes, repercussions why? of all these things. Yeah. Everything has a repercussion in the sense that all we do, we think we can just act the way we want to act and be the way we want to be without any ramifications whatsoever, but... This tries tries to point out that the very act of being the way we are is going to have ramifications in our lives and in the in the in the greater world beyond us, and that's that's an important lesson to learn from this film. And I think most importantly, imparts that idea that no matter how your life has been affected and what you may think, you shouldn't use that as a judgment upon someone else's life. Exactly, and that's what a lot of them were doing. You yeah. know, um, guilty. <laughs> his hatred for his son yeah. was was it was him using that as as an excuse to to blame the kid, which and is, it's, the, uh, is the is the is the underlying absolute bedrock of the film. That's the whole thing. Yeah. You totally nailed it there, mate. But uh, absolutely love it. I'll I'll hopefully watch it many many more times uh, up to my dying day because. I just love it. I love all the performances. The the cinematography is fantastic. It is even though it's sixteen millimeter and it's it's just the one location setting, it's very cinematic. The shots like you said, it's beautifully framed. It, it it's you know, it's wide and expansive where it needs to. It's up close and sweaty and personal personal when it when it needs to be that and it does it beautifully. But yeah, it's 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 a perfect film. I always think with the with the, the the shooting of the film as well, like the camera doesn't tend to stop much. It, the, it's always moving around the table. There's this real movement going on um, around it, you know, dollying and, and craning around. Which, which, although yes, you haven't got a sweeping vista and a feel to, to do all these crazy things with, it's doing it in a small space and creating that movement within the room. Which that's the cinematic feeling for me, and that's that's why it doesn't feel, as you were saying at the beginning, it doesn't feel like you're trapped in a room because this movement's happening, and there's these kind of dense layers created on the screen because you've got all these people. You know, there's that famous shot where they're sitting on the table and the chairs and stuff, and it's like layer after layer of these people across across the room. So it doesn't feel like some empty room or something. It's this composition of stuff going on. Uh, and I think that's why it works so remarkably in, in, know, in a sense it's interesting as well it. because 1957 so these guys they're pretty much apart from the, the the younger guy who works for the ad agency most of them are middle-aged guys 
that ad agency guy, he's still, he's not an absolute youngster. He's, you know, you've got to be of a certain age, over 21, I suppose, to be on a jury. And most of these guys are either middle age or old age. And 1950s was the first real decade of the teenager, of the young rebel. So in a sense, this mm. is kind of like an answer to, um, to the war generation, the guys that fought the war and went through all that dealing with a society that is for the first time, you know, becoming rock and roll as a culture phenomena. There's um, beatniks, all these kind of free f free thinking ideas that are trying to move culture on uh, are grating against this older generation that were brought up with dirt and respect and hard work. And in yeah. a sense, it answers a lot of those kind of um, questions because we can look at it as 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 them saying before we terminate this boy's life this young lad who's hardly even 18 yet let's just take a look at ourselves first and what we've become yeah that's the tension line in the film isn't it between the generations uh, sitting yeah. there and it's it's a good answer to things like the wild one or uh, you know these kind of youth things like rebel without a cause that you know they they showed you the knife fight in rebel without a cause and and that was a you know, something at the time that the, there was a, you know, oh, we're going to have to take that scene out or edit that scene now because kids were going to go stabbing each other rather than thinking, well, it's in the film because that's already what they're doing. But this shows, yeah, exactly. this shows you the other side of that where the peers are judging a certain uh, individual for, for a knife crime and, you know. The repercussions. Yeah, of that. It's, yeah, it's a good examination of the uh, of what was going on in America at the time. So for that reason, it's a good historical document in terms of film history. There, it's 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 like I say, an answer to the youth culture, and uh, everybody would want Henry Fonda as their dad. Nobody wants Lee J. Cobb as their dad. <laughs> <laughs> That's basically what it is, isn't it? Yeah. Or even worse than that, you know what? I'd cause... rather have Lee J. Cobb as my dad than that really nasty old guy. The old guy. Imagine he was your granddad or your dad. No thanks. That oh, guy he's is, a he is, you can He's like Joseph Fritzl or someone. He's got some people down in his uh, <laughs> basement or something. He's a piece of work. At least with yeah, Lee J. Cobb, he'd, 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 he'd respect you if you bopped him on the nose. He'd throw you out and shout at you and get out of here, but uh, he'd respect you for it. But there's, a, but there's a love and a passion in there, you know. Oh, I think you know he was probably um, the nicest guy ever in real life. The the, the interesting thing I say, you know, it, it doesn't age thingy much, but there's, obviously there's a few things in there from the period. But the bit I yeah. loved actually is when they're talking about the pictures, and he was like, "You remember the pictures." Um, you saw last week and I love the whole kind of oh it was a matinee uh, uh, the, feature uh, it had uh, the short yeah. beforehand and the cartoon the animated and I thought oh, I wish we still had them yeah <laughs> you know it was supply and those demand. are gone we just unfortunately. don't need them now because we can watch uh, yeah. Quentin Tarantino films on our phones <laughs> that, so that's what, blasphemy what, what, what else do we need but you know yeah I remember when I was a kid, uh, they did this thing on a Saturday. It was like a kids' club thing, and you could go, and the, the local sports centre also had a cinema in it. And, you know, you'd go on a Saturday, and they would play, even though it was the 80s, you'd go and watch something like Return of the Jedi. But before it, they'd put on all, like, you'd start with some cartoons. So you watch about 15 minutes worth of Bugs Bunny or something like that. Then they'd play a couple of, like, like remember uh, those old Buster... 
Crab, uh, Flash Gordon, or uh, oh, yeah, Zorro, yeah. Uh, the Zorro stuff, Tyrone Power. They'd play a couple like the of those serials. old ones, yeah. And, uh, you know, as 80s kids, that's kind of like, whoa, this is... Uh, but you loved it still because it was classic stuff, all that uh, old sorrow. Yeah. And you still watched it. And then they'd have a break and you'd go and get your sweets and your ice cream, whatever. You go back to your seats for the main matinee feature, which would be like, you say, uh, something like Return of the Jedi or Labyrinth or one of those great 80s kids movies. But I do remember we used to do that for a couple of years in the, in the, in the uh, summer. So that experience, I think it was kind of an old fashioned thing then but they were still doing it. But it's funny what comes around with cinema because look at what they're having to do now with drive-ins. Yeah, which I think is quite exciting, really. People I, I seem to love it. check them out. Yeah, because yeah. We, we were going to go and see one, but we couldn't get in because it was booked out of a showing of Pulp Fiction. Now, yeah. if they're going to re, re-show classic stuff, then I'm definitely up for that. I mean, I live in rural mid-Wales, so it's not as easy for me to just... You know, there's no drive-ins out here. It'd be a great thing to do out here, but there'd be no one, <laughs> no one to go to. But as I, I was talking to someone the other night about it, because they were like, "Oh, you, you wouldn't go watch a serious film then?" I was like, "No, it's not for serious films. It's for those kind of, you know, Grease or something like that." And it's like yeah. that'd be well fun, you know, like the old times, especially you know? something like, like Grease, the because everybody'd have their windows down and would be singing along together, yeah. and that would create a communal experience, even though we're in this. Uh, socially distanced, isolated experience, we can still have that connection with each other through song. So, yeah. in a sense, mentioning really nice. Greece or any of those great musicals is almost like the perfect thing to go and see. Because everybody singing in their cars, enjoying it, and uh, having a good communal experience. So, Sandy! <laughs> yeah, it's... Well, I grew up watching Greece. I had my, my sister, two years younger, my younger cousin, who was a year younger than me a year older than my sister the three of us we grew up watching Greece. that we had it on a video cassette it's the ultimate we played it until <laughs> the tape snapped it was yeah we used to dance along sing the songs you know all that rude stuff it's in it you don't really notice most of it when you're a kid because you don't get the no. references but might be the odd swear word that you just giggle at but i never really noticed stuff like that it's when it's one when you watch it when you get older and you go oh my god we used to watch this as kids but it's only because you're watching it with an adult uh, lens, you know. Yeah, it's one of them. I always think it's got the adult humour that goes over the kids' heads. So there's something for the adults and something for the kids at the same time. So Yeah. Like The Simpsons is like that. Oh! Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I think um, I think the great thing with 12 Angry Men is that this, this is my favourite period of cinema, really. You know, I love the noir films. I love the old black and white um dramatic crime films and stuff like that and courtroom dramas the classics and um and the absolute classics and i always say it's a shame they don't really make them like this anymore really they they are a thing of uh, history but this is but we're still pretty watching much them. the best we're example we're still talking about them all these years later oh, yeah. two two guys with just their own little podcast talking about movies we're talking about it and that says something about these old old films that sometimes you get these universal themes and and all the right ingredients with the right director the right crew the right actors the right everything and it becomes that movie magic that classic and you've picked here the ultimate film to end the first series on because it is a goddamn 
American classic. It's one of the best films ever made. Masterpiece. It's the perfect blend for me. It's it it's, it lands in that spot and is like how you know the perfect timing. It's one of them. It, it can, you, you never know when it's going to happen, but when it happens, it uh, it seems to last forever. And you know, yeah, as you say, seventy years on, we're still talking about it. You know, well, in the great tradition of the Plus podcast, uh, we uh, usually not like to talk about marks out of ten. Um, what, what are we talking here? I mean, it's it is a ten from me. It's a ten all the way. If I could give it eleven, it'd have an eleven. It's it's a definite ten out of ten. And same for me. If I could go higher, I would. It's uh, mm-hmm. it's it's number one on my list. It's my favourite, um, and it's certainly from a critical perspective as well. I think it's uh, in the top five critically made films of all time. You know, from that standpoint, definitely. I just think it is absolutely brilliant from top to bottom there's not really any faults i can pick on it really um which is really amazing for a film really sure well there we have it there's a a whole series we can look back over 10 films there that we've been discussing in this first series of the cinema plus podcast and i've really enjoyed uh going over these ones with you and uh, i imagine this is something really we'll do we'll definitely have to do a, a series two of our favorite films at some point soon because you know oh, we haven't even touched the surface yet in terms of our favorite films no absolutely it's been really enjoyable going over them and uh, obviously re-watching some absolute classics and watching some stuff i haven't seen before obviously some of the stuff that yeah, um same. you've picked out same here. and i'm sure vice versa yeah. and um absolutely we've, we literally have only skimmed the surface of what we enjoy so definitely there's I think great scope to carry on and do some uh, some more in the future. Oh yeah, um, because there's plenty more we haven't uh, covered yet. Absolutely. Well, there we go. Well, that's thank you for joining us uh, again, Greg. Thank it's been you a for pleasure. having me again. That's a that's a wrap on season one. <laughs> that's it. Season one wrapped up. We'll have some more podcasts coming soon, so do keep an eye out on the channel. And uh, you know. We'd like to say hello to all our friends over at Twitter. Thanks for following us along, as always. Thanks a lot, Skip Bolden, Tico Romeo, Liam Jackson, and all the guys at Film Twitter. What a great bunch. <laughs> and, uh, you know, if you want to catch up with more news and articles and reviews, be sure to hop on over to moremovies.co.uk. And uh, we put stuff out all the time over there, so see what we got there. And that's a wrap on Season 1. So There we go. It's been very enjoyable. And... Uh, We'll see you next time.